<clears throat> you like that? Um, no. So we're uh, three to four weeks into a series where we're talking about resurrection, what it means to be alive in Christ. And I, I love that video. I saw it for the first time a couple of years ago and thought, I mean, that would work so well right now with what we're talking about and who we want to be as a church. Because I, in, in that video, it, I get the sense, of, you know, remember when Paul, like in 1 Corinthians 6, talks about that we are temples of the living God. We are living, breathing people who extend resurrection power in the world, and it, and it goes in and through you. And the moment you think that the kingdom of God has its back up against a wall, or that, that faith has its back up against the wall, just watch out, because we serve a God who can never be tamed. And, and, and those interactions you have with people, whether it be at work or in the line at a grocery store, may matter for eternity. And it's, it's amazing how God works. And one thing I've been trying to remind people of, especially as I've I've been in Agape and some other places just trying to speak a word of encouragement to folks who were engaged in some real brokenness in our city is that there, there are times where God is planting seeds through His people in which His people will never see the fruit of the seeds that God uses them to plant. And may we be okay with that, to know that we're playing a part in the story of God, breaking out all over the world, and we may never hear the stories, but we just trust that God is at work and God is moving. Uh, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 today. Um, if, if you follow me on Twitter, if we're friends on Facebook, I've encouraged you the last couple of days to read 1 Corinthians 15. Some of you may have already done that. It is almost 60 verses long, so we're not going to go through every verse. But it is one of, if not the greatest chapter on the resurrection. So if there's a chapter that you would love to spend a little time in this week to encourage your heart, to ignite you, Go to 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm going to unpack it uh, a little bit this morning. Walter Wink is a guy that he wrote years ago. Uh, what he said is, killing Jesus was like trying to destroy a dandelion by blowing it. You hear, you, you get what he's saying? Like, killing him, they thought they were doing away with him, but killing Jesus was just spreading this power of God through his people all over the place, and it worked. So check it out, 1 Corinthians 15, let's begin in verse 1. Uh, here's how it begins. Now I would remind you, and let's just start right there, because do you ever feel offended when people try to remind you of something over and over again? Have you ever had a boss or, or, or someone that gives you a task and then they're constantly asking you if, they did the, if you did the task because they aren't sure if you remember to do it? Uh, I feel like I have a decent memory. There are times where Casey will call me up on the way home from work, and she'll say, can you run by the store? I need you to get four things. And I'll say, of course, and she'll name them. And then usually Casey will say, did you write them down? And I'm like, I don't need to write them down. I got a great memory. I, 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 went to, I have a master's degree, which has rarely impressed her, all right? Um, but she'll say, I need you to write them down. And then they're, usually she'll end up calling me while I'm at the store, to remind me to look at the list she gave me so I can get them. And it kind of offends me. Until I look down in the basket and I see the six items I have in the basket, none of them were the four items she gave me to get. Because when I go to the store, I, I just admit in front of you, I am weak, all right? It is where I'm tempted. Because I think going to the store, you should go to the store like you read books, from left to right, all right? And when you open up a brand new book, you don't open up in the middle. You begin from the left and to the right. And it's not my fault that the Kroger I shop at has ice cream at the far left, all right? And I move left to right, and I find myself gravitating to bacon and jalapenos and things like that, all right? 
And I don't know if it offends you, but here's Paul towards the end of his letter who says, All right, I need you to remind you of something. And here's what I need you to remind you of. That I handed you the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which you received, which you took on, which you lived into. And look in verse 3. For I handed on to you as of first importance. If you underline your Bibles, underline that. I handed on to you as of first importance. As if right now, okay, here, of all I've said, here, this needs to be at the forefront. Like, this is the ultimate trump card and what I'm telling you. This needs to be the foundation, the core. If there are any convictions you get from what I'm giving you in 1 Corinthians, this needs to be it. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared. And if you go on reading the next few verses, that word appeared shows up four or five times. And he just lets you know he appeared to Peter, he appeared to the twelve, he appeared to James, he appeared to me, he appeared to 500 others, hundreds of other people. And we don't have the stories of how Jesus appearing to a few hundred began to impact thousands because this wasn't one of those times where Jesus appeared to people and said, no, I kind of want you to keep this quiet for a while like Jesus occasionally would do. Those people were telling other people and telling other people. But the first importance was this. Jesus died. He was buried. He rose. And he appeared, which means he is fully alive. And when it came to first importance, that was it. That is what he handed on to them. So Paul's writing to these people in Corinth. And I want to unpack Corinth just a little bit because he's waiting to the end to make this point about first importance. What is the most important thing he's handed on to them? Because he wants them to know that what Jesus has accomplished through death, burial, and resurrection and being alive today has changed the world forever, and it's changed how you live in your context. Jesus didn't die and raise from the dead, so you have somewhere to go when you die. That is part of the story, and we celebrate that. Jesus died and rose from the dead so that the Spirit of God can invade your life now, and that you have a purpose for why you're here and why God is with you and how God has has gifted you and equipped you for works of service. So Paul's writing to people who are in the city of Corinth, one of the most immoral cities in the first century world. I've taught you in the past that if you were to think of the worst cities in the first century world, do you know what we call them now? And the answer is you call them the names of the books of the New Testament because God didn't give up on those places. So now we have books in the Bible named after Rome and Corinth and Ephesus and uh, Colossae, some of the worst immoral cities, places that you would not want to raise your children, yet not one time does Paul write any of those people and tell them, if you're really serious about raising your kids in the Lord, get out of Ephesus, or get out of Corinth, or get out of Rome. Instead, it was Paul equipping people with the power of God, the Spirit of God, the truth of God, so that wherever they are, they are people who live on purpose. So so he's writing to people in Corinth. It was a city full of all kind of immorality, pagan temples. It was a seaport. And the church in Corinth was whack. Like, I don't know what other word to use for it, all right? They were crazy. Sometimes I hear people say, we need to be like the early church. And I'm like, well, I don't want to be like that one, all right? Because in Corinth, I mean, they're fighting over who baptized who. They're, They're taking pride in things they should never take pride in. They there's all kind of immorality. And then you, chapter 11 through 14, it's all about worship wars and church fights. And have you ever seen a church fight? I have a friend when he was 12 years old. Uh, he's, he's my age. When he was 12, he, he grew up in a church and just happened he grew up in Arkansas. This isn't an Arkansas joke, all right? But it just happened that 
he grew up in Arkansas, and he said at the age of 12, he was getting really bored with church, like really bored. And one day his dad said, why don't you come with me to a men's meeting tonight? So the dad took him to a business meeting. Some of you remember having business meetings in your church. And in that meeting, his dad spoke up at one point and said, hey, y'all know, sister, she was a widow. I think we should do something for her. But what his dad didn't know is that she had a history with some of the other men who were in that room that night, if you know what I'm saying. And this fight broke out. There was an argument, but then there was this 70-year-old man who stood up and started rolling up his sleeves. And he looked at my friend's dad and said, you know I was a boxer years ago, and I could whoop your tail then, and I can whoop your tail now. And then other men are having to break up the fight, and that's when my buddy was like, looked and was like, man, I thought church was bored, but church is awesome now. Like, this is church. There's adventure, and you never know what's going to happen. Man, that church in Corinth, they were fighting over all kind of stuff. So in chapter 15, Paul lets him know, hey, of first importance, this is what it is. Because Paul needed them to understand what Jesus needs us to understand is that when the resurrection invades your heart, it is contextual. It's good news for the whole world. But it should really be good news for whatever context you find yourself living in. And Paul needed them to understand that when resurrection takes hold of the church, when resurrection power takes hold of the church, it means something for the communities around them, for the city they live in. That it's not just something you take into the closet of your house or into quiet places. It's, it's a life that you get to live. And one thing in the New Testament, the word comfort is never the word in which people make decisions about where they go to church The word comfort doesn't drive the day. In fact, these people, when they were at their best, they understood that that being comfortable with God is that you are comfortable with discomfort because we serve a God who can't be tamed. You can't be boxed into time limits and structures and, and forms and formats and all these other ways we sometimes unintentionally box God in because the Spirit of God runs loose and invades people for them to do the same. So we're in this series, uh, we're in a season right now in the month of April where next week we're having a, a special offering where um, we're giving to these six organizations and ministries and efforts that Justin named earlier. And we're doing this because we're people of the resurrection. That we believe that the good news of Jesus has something to say to, to kids in our city who don't have much, to people who maybe they're in their 20s yet they still don't have GEDs, to that the, the gospel matters for college students, and the list goes on. And, and this isn't an opportunity for you just to hear about organizations and what they're doing. There are these constant invitations that God is giving His people to invest in places throughout our communities where there is hurt. Philip Yancey said this. You can see this quote up on the screen. Sometimes people ask, where is God when it hurts? And that's not a bad question to ask. Where's God when it hurts? But he said, maybe the better question is, where's the church when the world hurts? Right? Because wherever there is hurt, the church should not respond by saying, let's go in the other direction because it would be way too messy to invest in that hurt. Instead, people of the resurrection are thinking, okay, where's their hurt in the world? And how do we enter into it? Because we have this message that God can bring dead things to life. It's never okay for us to sing songs about resurrection on Sunday yet not want to live it on Monday. 
that we sing these songs. And you may be confused on, on how to live it, and that's okay. I think we can do something with that. You may be questioning and discerning within your heart what does it mean for you to live resurrection, but we can't just come in here and sing songs about resurrection on Sunday morning and then just hold our fingers tight until the next Sunday where we sing the songs again. They're songs in which we now live. Um, so the reminder is <clears throat> Jesus died, he was buried, he rose, he appeared. Um, you don't get resurrection unless you're willing to die. And, and I, I know people, and I've lived this way, I've wanted the benefits of resurrection so many times in my life without ever wanting sacrifice I have to go through in order to get resurrection power. I know people who want the promise of what Jesus has to offer, yet they're not willing to die with Jesus. And who knows, this may have been the prayer of Jesus in the garden, right? The night before he was betrayed is, hey, if there's any way we can get the resurrection power where we unleash forgiveness of sins upon the world without me having to die, let's do it. But that wasn't the plan of God. So death comes before resurrection. And I know some of you in here feel like you're in that place where you are not, like your body is not dying, but maybe in your heart you are experiencing forms of death where things have been so broken. And the good news for you that the church declares over you today through song, through this message, through our time at the table is we are asking for resurrection power to come upon you in whatever place you find yourself in. All right, let's look, uh, get your Bibles out, okay? Come along with me. Um, I, I just ask you to be thinking to yourself, what is one thing you can take away from this message What is that, that could encourage your heart? What is one thing you can take away that you could bless someone else with this week? Through an email, a text message, some kind of contact. Hey, my preacher said this and it really encouraged me. I want to share it with you so that we can bless the world. So just be thinking about that. But let's begin in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. So let me stop right there. I think what's happening with these people, they are not questioning whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. These Christians believe that. What they're questioning is, do people raise from the dead? Jesus, he died, he rose, God did something great in Jesus, but when we die, do, do we come back to life? And if so, what does that mean? So Paul keeps going in verse 15. We're even found to be mis misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. So he makes it, I mean, what Paul is saying is, hey, if Jesus wasn't raised, and there's not promise of the resurrection for us, then all of this is meaningless. Sermons don't matter. Your lives don't matter. Like, this is, a, this is a, at the core of, of Christianity. And he keeps going in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sin. And then those also who have died in Christ have perished. So, so Paul goes as far as saying, hey, if Jesus didn't come out of the grave and you're not going to, people are still in their sin. So it's not just the cross that unleashes forgiveness of sins upon the world, it's that Jesus trampled death in all of that. So then in verse 20, what Paul does is Paul begins talking about, okay, here's what it means for the world. Here's the good news for the entire world. Here's the good news for the cosmos. And this is it. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have died. For since death 
came through a human being, through Adam in Genesis 3. The resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being, Jesus. For as all die in Adam, so all may be alive in Christ. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end when he hands over the king. Oh, dude, I love this, okay? Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father. After he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Isn't that some good news? All right, so here's what resurrection means for the entire world. That when resurrection power has its full effect, death is going to die. In fact, according to Paul, death is the last enemy to be destroyed. Satan's not the last enemy to be destroyed. Death is. And all death brings. So Jesus is reigning until this happens, and there are days where it may be just peace by peace, Jesus conquering things one by one. And then there's going to come the day where Jesus, God brings this great fulfillment in Jesus, that death is gone. Now understand, this is not some like negotiation one day where in the end God sits down with death and they negotiate a plan. God is not into negotiating with the powers of evil. He wants to destroy the powers of evil. And what Jesus has accomplished through death, burial, and resurrection is that death, the clock is ticking on it. There is a lifespan. And one day Jesus is coming to place it under his feet forever. And that's good news for the whole world. But let's uh, get a little practical, okay? Because Paul does. In verse 35, here's what he says. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they have? That's not a bad question. Because some of you ask it too. Like, when we die, what happens to our bodies? And how do we come to life again? Like, do we have a physical body? Is it just some soul, something we can't even wrap our minds around? And Paul addresses this. Now, I want to skip and just touch on a, a couple of places here. Look in verse 42. And here's what he says. For it is with the resurrection of the dead that what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a physical body, but it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, uh, became a living being. The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Look in verse 49. Just as we have borne the, uh, born the image of the man of the dust, Adam, we will also bear the image of the one in heaven. Now, when you see physical body and spiritual body, this has caused a lot of debate among scholars. And this is where guys like Scott McKnight, N.T. Wright, Ann Sprengler, um, Eugene Peterson, and, and the list goes on. Th this is where they've done work with the Greek. And I don't have time to unpack all of this for you, but you have people who argue that maybe the better way to say this is not your physical body and your spiritual body, but your present body and your future body. That there is a present body that we have that is decaying, yet there is this future body that God is giving to those who are in Jesus that will never decay. I believe in bodily resurrection. Uh, and there have been people and leaders for 2,000 years who believe the same. That I don't think when you die and when Jesus comes and makes all things right, I don't think you become just some formless, like ghostly soul that, that floats in the heavens. I think we are raised with a physical body that has been set right. 
I think what God started in Genesis 1 and 2 is what God will bring to completion one day. That God's not going to let Satan win any of this. And in Genesis 1 and 2, God created the world. He created humans, humans and he said it's so good. Now, when this body is set right, and, and the people start asking all these questions, what about those who have been, been cremated or those who even then, that they're seeing people, those people in Corinth, they had seen their friends who loved Jesus, who had been torn shreds in theaters and stuff like that, who had, who had died. Man, our God who could take dust in the beginning can take anything in the end and make it right. And the good news is that faith tells us that what God did for Jesus is what God is going to do for Jesus' people too. And, and so all this is the good news of that uh, our, our bodies now, our present bodies are corruptible. One day they will be incorruptible. Our bodies now are decaying. One day they will never decay. Our present bodies are deemed to die. One day they will never die again. So when God sets our bodies right, there will be no more tendinitis, no more back pain, no more migraines, no more seizures, no more anything that can harm your body, no more cancer that grows. Your bodies will be set right. And this goes all the way back to church leaders like Origen, Ignatius, Justin Martyr, Tertullian. Some of you are like, dude, you're just making up names now, right? Like Katie Smith, like all these people from years ago who believed this and taught it and thought it was good news. I've got to read you one guy. This is a church leader in the 12th century. His name is Hugh. All right, true story. And here's what he wrote about bodily resurrection. He says, it will be immune from death to sorrow. It will be at the height of its powers, free from disease and deformity, and around 30 years old, the age at which Christ began his ministry. It will surpass anything we can imagine, even from the accounts of Christ's appearances on earth after his own resurrection. And you read that, and there's some of that, you're like, man, that sounds good. And some of you are like, I don't know about 30. And some of you are like, I've come to think of it, I kind of liked what I looked like at 30, right? At 30, I was at my best. And I don't know if it's going to be a body that's 30 or how it's going down, but God's going to set our bodies right. Look in verse 50. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will all be changed. And I love this, verse 53. For this perishable body, must put on imperishability. And this mortal body must put on immortality. And when this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. The, the shout and the declaration that many of us, you've heard this, we, we read this, that death has been swallowed up in victory. That does not happen until God sets the world, and the body right. And after we have been raised to life in Jesus, in the fullness of God's power and in our eternal state, then with healthy bodies from head to toe, with people who've been made whole, then there is this shout of death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? You no longer have a hold on us. And what God will do when he raises us is no, it's not just a matter that no longer will you not have back pain or headaches 
or, or that anything on your body can be harmed, you will never again live with the anxiety of something happening to your body again. You will never go to sleep wondering if you're going to wake up feeling some tightness. Everything will be made right. All right, so why is, why is this all important? Have you ever thought, like sometimes, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul says of first importance, why does Paul wait until the very end of 1 Corinthians to make that point? I mean, if you're ever going to sit down at a lunch or at coffee or you're with people and you're going to talk about the most important thing, do you wait to the end or you just drop it on them at the beginning? And you can make arguments for, well, you kind of just let the conversation go on, then you hit them at the end with what's most important. And that's what Paul does. And I think part of the reason is, These people were so distracted by what they had already made of spirituality in church that it was hard for them to hear truth. So Paul had to help them sort out all their divisiveness and all the worship wars and church wars, and then he hits them with, okay, look, now through all that, uh, through all those distractions, you need to understand what is most important. Because Paul drops this on him right after he spends four chapters talking about worship wars and how people are coming together and they're fighting over styles of worship and how Sundays go. And not that Sundays aren't important, but it's right after that Paul lets him know, look, the most important thing is that we know that what Jesus did is really good news for us. And when we get distracted with all that other stuff, you know what suffers? Lost people don't hear the good news of Jesus. Broken people don't receive the healing that the church has to give them. And right here, we're worshiping in a place where within a half mile from us are hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people who are in desperate need of a touch of God. Who's going to give it to them? We're the people of the resurrection. So it's important for Paul to let them know that as we pray for the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, these are prayers we pray. These are deposits of heaven that are given that one day God's going to turn death back. And this was worth living and dying for. When I first came to Memphis, I used to drive around. I used to drive around Memphis, Bartlett, Arlington, all places. And I would go on these prayer drives every week. And the prayers I would pray is, God, if the resurrection of Jesus is the best news for the world, what does it mean for whatever community I was driving in? And I would just pray resurrection over those places. And it began developing in me just this deep love for the good, the bad, and the ugly in our city, for, for neighborhoods of all kinds, that if the resurrection's the best news for the world, what does it mean for how I engage the 901? What does it mean for how Sycamore View engages it? And part of my journey led me about seven or eight years ago, I, I was fairly new here, where I went to a place I'd heard of called Hope House. Hope House is a daycare that serves kids who suffer from the AIDS epidemic. It's down in the Midtown area. And um, they ended up partnering me with this kid where for a year and a half, I was this mentor for this kid who, when I first started mentoring him, he was two years old, and he could curse like a saint, which tells you something about his environment. I mean, it, it was like he was saying, I mean, most kids at two, their vocabulary is not large, but his was very small, but um, he, he, knew how to, he knew how to curse. And it was a horror being with him for a year and a half. Yet the first time I went to Hope House, there was this worship minister, and he was on his guitar, and there were 15, 18, 20 kids in the room, and they, these are all kids between the ages of two and four. To be in Hope House, uh, one of your parents has to be infected with AIDS, and you have to be under the poverty line. 
And I walked in, and they were singing just these fun you know, songs that some of us would sing in VBS. And I thought, well, let me just sit down, and I'll sing with these kids. And, and I went to sit down. Before I could even get to the ground, these kids were, like, climbing all over me, wanting to lean on my shoulders and sit in my lap. And there was this one girl who sat on my right leg, and she had her fingers. I mean, she, it was like she had never seen a, a white dude before. <laughs> I mean, she's, like, like, touching my ears, and her fingers were going in my eyes, and it was... And then there was this other kid on my left leg, and, and this kid was, he would just stare at me. He wouldn't say anything. I would ask him questions. He wouldn't respond. And finally, I said, what is your name? He said, my name's Timmy. I said, well, Timmy, is great to meet you. Do you know what my name is? And he just looked at me, and I said, you can call me Mr. Josh. And he shook his head, no, and he just looked, and he said, I want to call you my daddy. Yeah, that was my response, too. I remember I got in my truck. I was driving home, and I'm, like, driving on the interstate, bawling, you know, like it, nobody should do. And I called up Casey. I was like, baby, we got 15 kids we need to adopt, like, today, all right? <clears throat> and what happens when resurrection power goes into any place of hurt? What does it look like? Um, it's good news for Corinth. And it's good news for Memphis in the 901. For those who are praying this morning, will you go to your spot? Because I want the church to see who people are who are available for prayer today. Because there may be someone here, you want to bring something before this church. There may be someone here who's never declared Jesus as the Lord of their life and have been baptized. And if so, we invite you to the front to come find Randy or Tommy. We have women around this room to receive you for prayer. And I can't tell you how many of you I've talked to who have gone to one of these tables where we have prayer cards and pens, or you've gone to someone in this room, even in the back, these people who were stationed for prayer, and you bear witness that there are times when you move your body to go to receive prayer from someone, there is this release in your life. There's like a burden is lifted. And if you're in need of someone to pray, I encourage you, I invite you to please go and just have someone who you know will love you and pray over you. And if there's anything else we can do for you, please come on up. Find Tommy, find Randy. Can we stand together? Let's sing this song as a declaration. Lord, we need your grace and 